This is an ABC podcast. And coming to you from Gadigal Country, another week of the Little Wireless Program. Laura Tingle and I have been very dear friends for many, many years, but I never cease to wonder at her extraordinary CV. For her, it's ever onward, ever upward, not content with being 7.30, her job at 7.30 Report, her column at the Finn Review, her uh, her chairmanship of the National Press Club. She is, of course, now on the ABC board. And as we speak, she's on her way to London for the coronation, not to report on it, but to be in it. Buckingham Palace have just confirmed that there's been a quickie divorce and Camilla is out and Laura is in. So she will become our queen in very short order. But fear not, we've got a wonderful stand-in, which I'll introduce to you in just a moment. Also tonight, Uganda's monstrous anti-LGBT law. It is a breathtaking law which uh, advocates the death penalty for homosexuality. And uh, then we're going to look at the story of convict orphans in Australia, both uh, people who arrived by ship and also local Indigenous children. And the one thing these orphans had in common was that they weren't orphans. Their parents were still alive. Now, in Laura's uh, absence... It is my great pleasure to welcome back the splendid Amy Remikas, who is a political reporter with The Guardian and uh, has filled in for Laura on a number of occasions and done awfully well at it. So, uh, welcome. And The Voice continues to be, well, dominate politics over the last week and uh, we've seen those divisions in the Liberal Party. But today, we've seen a few Liberal Party members unite behind former Liberal MP Pat Farmer, who launched his plan to campaign for the yes vote in Hobart alongside none other than Albanese. Who else was there, Amy? I do have to say first, your introduction was incredible um, and I think Queen Laura Tingle could quite possibly make me a monarchist rather than a republican. (laughs) Me too, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now to the matters of the day. Yes, the voice and the liberals, what is going on there? This yes, liberals for yes campaign has been brewing away for quite a number of months. It's been going on under, under the background of what was first Peter Dutton's soft no against the voice, which of course in the last couple of weeks has hardened to an absolute no. And so what Liberals for Yes uh, are basically what they're coming out with is all the moderates uh, who over the years have, you know, supported these sorts of propositions have kind of gone, we've had enough of the Conservatives deciding what it is the Liberal Party stands for and we are now going to step in and actually start campaigning. We saw some of this with the marriage equality debate where you saw uh, liberals like Trent Zimmerman and Trevor Evans and um, all sorts of people who have since uh, been kind of booted out of the parliament by the Teals stand up and campaign for a yes vote. This is a lot more formalised though because, uh, of course, the referendum is more formalised. The marriage equality debate wasn't something that everyone had to vote in, whereas this is. Amy, I understand the Tasmanian Premier was among the Liberals who um, who was supporting Elbow. Mm, And he came out pretty much immediately after uh, Peter Dutton said that they weren't going to support uh, The Voice and said, actually, no, that's not the position that we are taking in the Tasmanian Liberals. And, of course, he is the uh, most senior-ranking Liberal outside of Peter Dutton at the moment because they don't have government anywhere else. It's him and, I believe, the Brisbane Lord Mayor because the Brisbane City Council is, of course, um, a giant government, local government structure in Australia. So it's, uh, it is interesting, but you're also 
seeing a lot of uh, liberal oppositions also coming out of it. The New South Wales liberals uh, were not against the voice under Don Perrottet. I don't think that that has changed. Queensland is always going to do what Queensland does, but the West Australian nationals have come out and said that they're not against the voice. Uh, South Australia, again, is, is an interesting one, but of course they have just passed the bipartisan voice to parliament in the state. So it does seem like the federal party is the outlier here. Now, I understand that Hobart's mayor, Anna Reynolds, was also on site, but of course her dad is Henry Reynolds. Oh, I did not know that. Well, you, you see, you've come to the right place. <laughs> now, I, I'd like a side note here, Gladys and Bodies. Given the uh, welcome to country at uh, Pat Farmer's Yes campaign launch in Hobart was local Aboriginal man Rodney Dillon. Now, Rodney's a descendant of Fanny Cochrane Smith, who was uh, removed from her living parents and sent with two of her siblings to the Hobart Convict Orphanage School in the 1800s and we'll be telling that story a little later in the program. So, Amy, how many Libs are now running, a significant Libs are now running a Yes campaign? I haven't actually added them up, but that number is growing. And I think over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see more people join that. You're going to see the people who lost at the last election start to speak up and say that we're also for it. You're going to see quite a few more former Liberal MPs, I think, join that campaign. And I think there might be, you know, a, a couple of surprises in there as well, because this is Australian politics. But it does kind of go to show that the Liberal party as the federal opposition are still trying to find out exactly where they fit into this new political landscape that we're in. And I'm not sure that they have quite worked it out yet. They're holding together by not doing anything that upsets the Conservatives. That's basically what Peter Dutton is doing at the moment. He's gone, no changes, no one's going to blow up the show because we're giving them everything that they want. Does that mean that they are the Liberal Party in the tradition of Menzies? I think that there would be quite a few former and current members who would maybe be questioning that. Well, amongst them might be the likes of, um, well, Simon Birmingham and Russell Broadbent. Yeah, well, I mean, Russell Broadbent is quite outspoken uh, and can be because he's on the backbench. But Simon Birmingham uh, has so far said that he will not be stepping down from the shadow front bench uh, to campaign for yes. So I'm not quite sure what Simon Birmingham plans to do in terms of perhaps he's just going to be quiet and not actually campaign for no. But if he is still with the front bench, then he is tied to the party position. So it looks like uh, Dutton may not have well read the room. Oh, well, there have been reports, of course, that what the party room decided may not actually be what the Peter Dutton presented as the party room position. So there is some conjecture over whether there was some agreement that there did need to be some sort of national voice, that these local and regional voices that the coalition or the Liberal Party do support uh, feed up into. And so there are some questions over whether... Uh, whether or not people knew that they were outright saying no to any sort of national voice. So I think there's a little bit more to play out uh, here. But of course, this isn't actually about politics. This is about uh, a referendum that everybody is going to vote in. And ultimately, it's going to be about uh, recognising Indigenous people within our constitution, because Australia, again, is an outlier as a colonised nation that does not recognise its Indigenous peoples. And I think the more that the campaigns start to take over, the less about politics this will become because it isn't about the politicians at the end of the day. Now, the No campaign, uh, a better way, that group has uh, launched their their efforts as well. And they're also saying constitutional recognition is okay, but the voice to parliament isn't. 
Mm, and I think they're running the line, if you don't know, vote no, uh, which is going to be something that the Yes campaign is going to have to overcome by answering those questions so people do know. But the thing is, like, yes, uh, everyone is saying we constitutional recognition is something that we want, but that's not actually what the question in the referendum is. And so the referendum is going to be asking about constitutional ref, uh, recognition through a voice to the parliament and the executive government. So it's okay that everyone's like, oh, yeah, we like half the question because it's the other half of the question that is really going to matter. And that is going to be what the Yes campaign has to try and get the support for. I wouldn't dream of expressing a preference for the yes or no side, but I I have a sort of a feeling that uh, every time Peter Dutton says something, the yes vote goes up. I think uh, you may not be alone in that because a lot of the issues that Peter Dutton has been raising is something that something like a voice to the parliament could potentially address. So when he's been talking about the problems in rural and regional Indigenous communities, when he's been talking about the issues in Alice Springs and what should happen there, it's almost like he's coming up with a, if only the parliament knew more about that. And wouldn't it be great if there was a voice to parliament in which they could influence and give recommendations on government legislation? Now, of course, the parliament is going to decide what the parliament decides. That's the way that it always has been. But God, that Input would probably be good, wouldn't it, if to address these issues that Peter Dutton has been raising? Now, tonight on uh, the PM was on 7.30 responding to, uh, to Peter Dutton's claim that uh, he was given information about sexual abuse cases in Alice Springs that he uh, disregarded. Now, the PM denies any knowledge of this. Take us through the issue, please, Amy. So Peter Dutton has been saying that uh, there has been rampant sexual abuse of children in Alice Springs and he most recently made the claim that the Prime Minister was made aware of this and he hasn't acted on it. And Anthony Albanese, as you pointed out, uh, in response to Sarah Ferguson's excellent questioning, has said that he he rejects that. He rejects the assertion that Peter Dutton was made, that his office or he was made aware of this. He says, I'm not sure what he's talking about. This is the first I've heard of it. It's also interesting because it's not something that the Prime Minister would necessarily investigate or address anyway. It's something that the police would address. And that is what the government has been saying in response. There is mandatory reporting in the Northern Territory. So if Peter Dutton or others know of alleged child abuse going on, then they are obligated to make a report of that to the police. Before I let you go does Dutton have a, a time bomb, a ticking time bomb, uh, in regards to uh, the Solicitor General's advice? He's, uh, he's being, PM is being, well, pressured to release it. He is, and it's still unclear as to whether we're going to get the advice or just the views of the Solicitor General's advice, uh, because I don't think we're going to get the actual, this is everything that he said on this particular thing. It might actually just be a bit more of a whoosh-whoosh, here are his views on this particular thing. But he, Peter Dutton has been relying on media reports about uh, alleged conjecture about advice on including executive government. And and saying, well, you know, like even the Solicitor General is against it. But anyone who's familiar with advice that Solicitor Generals give knows that that's probably not true because usually governments say, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing and here are some other things that we could potentially do. What is your advice? And then the Solicitor General goes and checks out all the law books and says you can do this or you can do that and here are the pros and cons and here is something that you might need to overcome if you went down this path, um, but here's the way that we potentially could overcome it, blah, 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 blah. That's what the advice is. It's not usually a yes, do it or no, don't do it. It's like if you're going to do it, here's how you would. No blah, blah, blahs from you, Amy. <laughs> Another impeccable performance from Amy Ramikas, The Guardian Australia's uh, political reporter. And Amy and I are packing our bags because we're off, off to London to uh, witness the crowning of Charlie III and uh, Queen Laura. Coming up, the latest attack on uh, LGBTQI rights in Africa. And this may take a little time to make the connection. 
a new bill recently introduced in Uganda represents one of the most extreme forms of anti-LGBT legislation in the world, and that's saying something. It even calls, as I said earlier, for the death penalty in some cases. It's a dangerous development, and it represents a problem that uh, extends way beyond Uganda. We have, of course, in Putin, another zealous homophobe, While some African countries are moving towards greater recognition of of LGBTQ rights, others are taking a similar route to Uganda, and they're not alone. Graham Reed is director of the LGBT Rights Program at Human Rights Watch, and Caleb, Caleb OKAK, is a journalist and managing editor at Minority Africa. It's a digital publication covering minorities across Africa, and with a little bit of luck, they now join me to discuss developments. Welcome to you both. Graham, can you start off by walking us through in broad detail this new bill in Uganda. Thank you, yes. So this bill was actually passed by Uganda's parliament on March the 21st and it's waiting the president's signature. Once it has the president's signature, if he decides to sign, then it would become law and he has 30 days from the from the passage through parliament to sign it. And the content of the bill goes so much further than existing legislation in Uganda. Already, same-sex sexual acts in Uganda are punished with up to life imprisonment, and this bill would reinforce that. There's also a provision that an attempt to perform a same-sex act could result in 10 years imprisonment. And then there's this clause called aggravated homosexuality, and this is where the death penalty is included, including for what's called serial offenders, which is presumably people who are convicted more than once under the uh, bill. It also prohibits um, having sexual relations with a person with a disability, um, also with the death penalty. And there are other provisions such as keeping premises to facilitate homosexuality. That's the clause in the bill. But effectively what that does is allow for 10 years imprisonment for a landlord who rents to a lesbian couple, for example. And there's a provision around prohibition of marriage. Now, of course, same-sex marriage is not legal in any event in Uganda, but anyone who attended or participated in a ceremony could go to prison for 10 years. And then there's this very innocuous clause called the promotion of homosexuality, which would mean that activists could go to prison for up to 20 years, or anyone who publishes or distributes material relating to LGBT rights could go to prison for 20 years. I have to ask you this in parenthesis. Is the death penalty used often in Uganda? And I'm not talking about same-sex crime. Not that I am aware of, no. Um... But this is a this is a potential um, punishment in terms of the law. Okay, I just wanted to know whether it was uh, like the US, like Texas, but uh, apparently that's not the case. Caleb, uh, what's what's been your reaction to this appalling legislation? Thank you. I I think that my you know my my general reaction has been sort of terror, but not essentially surprised i i think that it's 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 something that you know we've we've seen and and when i say we i mean people who have kind of like done work in this space or who continue to work in this space it's something that's been anticipated for a while right for the last few months um, and it's also not the first time that uganda is passing a bill of this nature so in 2013 uganda passed the anti-homosexuality act which um was nicknamed the kill the gays bill and similar to this new bill, also you know prescribed the death penalty for homosexuality, even though that sentence was eventually reduced to life in prison. Um, in December of 2013, it was signed into law by by the president, and was only sort of like challenged and then overturned in August of the next year. I right? can so, I can think of no more powerful effect to total censorship, Caleb. No one will dare tell their stories. Writers won't be able to comment on it. 
True, true. And I think that's that's kind of the design of you know laws and bills of this nature, right? There is also something that the debate around these laws and bills do in the meantime, which also, I believe, exacerbate violence. So even if it's not passed, um, even if it's not signed into law, rather, there's already some, some, some sort of violent crime that it creates just by talking about it, right? And so we've seen this much realized in Uganda where just um, right, right after the bill was passed, we had these five boys who were arrested in Ginger for what the police, and who are still in prison till now, till June, for what the police says was like recruiting boys into acting gay porn or something similar. Graham, Pope Francis recently uh, condemned laws criminalising homosexuality and you've suggested that even he could fall foul of this bill. Absolutely. I mean, the law is so extreme, both in its scope and in the punishments and also in the framing of the law. And there's a provision in the law that would require members of the general public, including friends or family members, to report anyone that they know or suspect of being LGBT or face six months in prison. And the law goes so much further than the kinds of laws that the Pope has already condemned. And, you know, the Catholic Church does stand against criminal penalties against violence and against what's called unjust discrimination. Although some religious leaders in Uganda have made statements that are entirely contrary to that position of the church. Isn't Catholicism quite powerful in Uganda? It is very influential and powerful. The Catholic Church has not yet made an official statement on the bill, although some individual members have joined the chorus, as Caleb has mentioned, that preceded the bill condemning homosexuality and contributing to what has become a moral panic within Uganda, particularly because the bill is erroneously framed as if it's there to protect children. So thereby drawing a parallel between homosexuality and paedophilia that underpins the entire rationale of the bill. And that really provokes strong public reaction as Caleb has said, the damage has already been done in terms of the kind of moral panic that has been produced um, prior to the passage of the bill. Graham, Human Rights Watch has documented the laws criminalising homosexuality and have found, uh, well, have found countries from Jamaica to Cameroon to Uzbekistan are, um, are all running the same line. Have you... Are you afraid of seeing a similar thing sweep across not only Uganda but Africa? I think that I think that there is a risk that there will be similar laws proposed elsewhere. The 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 main feature of these laws that distinguishes it from prior laws that outlawed specific sexual practices is these laws seek to limit the expression of identity and restrict freedom of association, freedom of assembly. So they're really restricting any advocacy around LGBT issues. Russia was one of the proponents of these kinds of laws with the gay propaganda law that restricted public expression of identity in Russia initially in the presence of children, but that has subsequently now been extended more broadly so that it becomes an offence, an administrative offence in Russia to make any positive public statements around LGBT issues. And there's similar laws have been proposed elsewhere in the world that have a similar broad scope. Caleb, I, uh, what are some of the political justifications that have been provided? Graham's mentioned one, but I guess people are beating the drum about... Uh, traditional family values. Yeah, true. I, and, you know, what, what's, what's, what's super interesting is, you know, there's no, like, in the conversations, like, around what constitutes or means or what African traditional values mean, there's not as much context into what Africa was like and places like Uganda was like pre-colonia- pre-colonialism, right? And I think that, you know, sometimes when we sort of describe... Um, the extant laws in in sort of countries like this as quote unquote relics of colonization, it 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 keeps out from the conversation the ways in which these laws are actually doing much more than being remnants or being passive. They actually are existing and they actually extant, right? They actually carry on. 
Um, and a lot of times when, when, when people talk about what these traditional African values are, it is a way from how Africans were, you know, welcoming to queer people, how queer people have always existed in, in places like Uganda and Sudan um, and across the continent, really. And it's not to say, of course, that, you know, homophobia would not have reached this extent, you know, with or without um, sort of like colonialism or colonial laws. But I think if 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 that context was much more present in the conversation, then it would be a lot better. The other thing which, which Graham has already mentioned is like about the, 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 the children justification, right? And what's really peculiar about this particular bill is for the first time, it actually criminalizes children. Um, and it says that like a child committing the offense is liable to a three-year sentence. And it's such a vague text that it's not really clear what 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 particularly is sort of like child homosexuality. And that's really dangerous and, you know, seems quite contrary. And I think we actually published a piece on how, and, and I mean like on Minority Africa, on how the the bill itself, you know, uses children as sort of like its justification, yet acts contrary to that. Graham, Uganda is one of at least 67 countries that criminalise same-sex relationships. Yet at the same time, we should acknowledge that some African countries have decriminalised same-sex relations. That's right. I mean, in recent years, we've seen Lesotho, for example, Mozambique, Angola, Botswana, Seychelles, Gabon briefly criminalized and then decriminalized. Malawi put a moratorium on arrests. So there is a there's mixed development on the continent. The African Commission on Human and People's Rights um, passed a resolution condemning violence and discrimination against LGBT people and also calling for perpetrators of violence to be brought to justice. And I think we've also seen an enormous um, increase in the organizations that are working to combat uh, anti-LGBT sentiment on the continent. Caleb, I understand, in fact, we've done something on this before, that American evangelicals have been pushing Uganda. 100%. And I think that's that's such, like, as well, like an important context for conversations around bills like this, whether in places like Uganda or Nigeria or Kenya, the, the, the sort of like the understanding and recognizing the connections that these views have to, you know, existing narratives about queerness in places like the US is very, very crucial, right? And if if we kind of look at, you know, sort of like what the history has been. So before the 2013 bill, you know, there was, which was introduced first in 2009, there was a two-day conference that was held in Uganda that was sort of like held by US evangelicals who traveled to Uganda to hold this conference and sort of like protecting family values. And I think what's what's very peculiar about all of these kind of like conferences is the fact that the rhetoric being used, right, is is similar to what has been used in the ex-gay and anti-gay movement in the US. Back to you, uh, if I could, uh, uh, Graham. South Africa's constitution includes a, uh, well, a protection of sexual orientation issues, does it not? It does. In fact, South Africa became the first country in the world to include ex- an express reference to sexual orientation in its constitution. So the laws and policies within South Africa have been brought up to date to align themselves with the constitution. But there are also difficulties such as high levels of violence within South Africa. Okay, we've just got time for one more issue. Given the incredible anger that this Ugandan uh, policy or legislation is causing around the world, do you... Caleb, think that perhaps the president won't sign it. It's 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 hard to say, you know, and I think the timing is also part of it. Like Graham said, the timing between when the bill was passed and when he has to sign it into law is very short time. But I do think there's there's a lot of you know belief that the bill is resisting westernization, which is a very you know curious case because queer people have always been in Africa, and I think that to sort of tally or like align with those narratives of sort of like a resistance of Western imperialism that is potentially, you know, the logic that was used in the 23rd in signing, and it could again be replicated in this instance. I thank you both very much for coming on. My guests have been uh, Graham Reed, who's director of the LGBT rights program at Human Rights Watch, and thank you, Caleb Okarakis, uh, who's a journalist and managing editor 
at Minority Africa, a digital publication covering minorities across the continent. Coming up, the hidden stories of Australia's convict orphans. you a paragraph from the Hobart Town Gazette of 1825. Those abandoned children who prowl our streets in shreds of wretchedness without a mother to cherish or a father to protect them are dangerous. By 1828, the orphan schools for boys and girls of Hobart Town were built by order of the Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, George Arthur, for it was said their protection. Very few of the 6,000 kids who entered the orphanage between 1828 and 1879 were orphans in the usual sense of the word. They were the children of convicts and of Tasmanian Aboriginal families and their parents was still very much alive. My next guest was uh, born on the plains of Texas, raised in the mountains of East Tennessee, came to Australia some decades ago, and now feels duty-bound to tell the story. Lucy Frost is the former chair of English at the University of Tasmania. She was director of the Female Factory History Site in Hobart, which is a former women's prison for convicts. She was also founding president of the Female Convict Research Centre. Lucy uh, was last on the Little Wilders program in 2012 talking about her uh, book, Abandoned Women, about Scottish women convicts exiled in Van Diemen's Land with their young children. And it was this research that led her to write her latest book, Convict Orphans, The Heartbreaking Stories of the Colony's Forgotten Children and Those Who Succeeded Against All Odds, published by Alan and Unwin. Uh, Lucy Frost, welcome back. And at the outset of the program, I have to tell you, you've won a koala stamp for your efforts, the highest award the little program can offer. So it's good to have you back. Tell me, please, about the children who arrived in Hobart on the good ship Atwick. They arrived with their mothers in 1838. There were 19 children who sailed on the Atwick, along with 150 uh, convict women. When they disembarked at the Hobart town harbour. They walked from the harbour out to the Cascades Female Factory, the women's prison that was on the edge of town. And of the 19 children who were shut up in the so-called nursery part of the prison, five died. The other children were carted off across town to the male and female orphan schools where they were incarcerated. Now, the building was uh, looked pretty good from the outside, but that didn't tell the story, did it? No. The building is quite grand. The buildings are still there today in Newtown. Uh, they were designed by the colonial architect who was given the charge of really big institutions to design. So there was a boys' school on one side of a church and a girls' school on the other, uh, though you wouldn't know anything about the orphan schools today because there isn't any signage to tell you why they were built or who they were built for. So many stories to be told. Let's begin with the story of Hannah Bennett. Hannah Bennett um, arrived uh, with her mother 
uh, a few years after the uh, children on the Atwick. So she didn't go uh, to the Cascades Female Factory. She was separated from her mother on the wharf as soon as they disembarked. I'm sure these women had absolutely no idea what was going to happen to their children. They probably thought, well, if I manage to get my child on board, then I'll manage to keep her with me uh, while I'm there. But of course, that wasn't going to happen because the female convicts were not imprisoned once they got here. They were sent out to work as domestic servants, and nobody wanted a domestic servant with um, a tiny child. So Hannah was only two years old when she was separated from her mother at the wharf and carted off to the orphan schools. But I think there's signs to suggest that her mother really did care about her, And as soon as she got far enough along in the convict system to have a ticket of leave and to be able to earn some money of her own, she went out to the orphan school and retrieved her her little girl. This was when when, uh, Hannah, by this time, was about five years old. But unfortunately, like many of the convict women, Hannah's mother was addicted to alcohol. And even though she must have cared about Hannah. She was not reliable. So one day when Hannah was about nine, her mother and the man with whom she uh, was living uh, got uh, completely drunk and were carted off to the watch house for the night, leaving the nine-year-old girl on her own. She was raped and badly injured by this experience. This led to her being sent back to the orphan schools because the judge, who was depending on Hannah, Hannah's testimony to convict the alleged rapist, had to be convinced that Hannah knew what it meant to take an oath to tell the truth. And so she was sent to the orphan schools to be taught this practice by the Catholic chaplain, which she du- duly learned. And the man was convicted and sentenced to 10 years transportation, which was the same sentence that her mother had had received for stealing a silk handkerchief. And uh, so she's sent back to the orphanage and to the tender mercies of an appalling woman. Tell us about uh, the matron. Matron Smith. She's like something out of a Grimm's fairy tale, like the Wicked Witch. She terrorized the girls who were under her charge. So some of these um, these children were uh, definitely beaten and very cruelly treated. But what got Matron in Smith into trouble was not that she was beating the children, but that she was misappropriating their food and that she was the head of a system of servants who were allegedly stealing food that belonged to the children, rations and so on, and and selling them on the local market. And the superintendent of the orphan schools began to get suspicious about what Matron Smith was up to. And so he instigated a careful kind of check on what was going on, and he gathered enough evidence. He had been a police magistrate, and he had her brought up before an inquiry. And the girls who had been working for her and been working in the kitchen and knew exactly what was going on and had remained silent all these years and had not complained about being beaten were suddenly given an opportunity to tell their stories. And one of them was Mary Connors who gave evidence that she'd seen her brother dying and another girl being beaten to death by Matron Smythe. That's that's right. And so these girls, including Hannah, uh, who was the first one to give evidence, began to tell the story of, of what had been happening. And as you say, Mary Connors was the one who introduced the question about about cruelty. And the, the documentation was entirely taken down. Uh, so there were pages and pages and pages of testimony from children who were there, from children who had been there, from staff. There was no question about the reign of terror over which Matron Smith presided. Lucy, did anything come out of the uh, out of the inquiry? Well, this is one of the 
really infuriating aspects of the story. By this time, this was uh, 1856, the convict ships had stopped arriving. The colony was now self-governing and had changed its name from Van Diemen's Land to Tasmania. But not all the convict institutions were being had been handed over yet to the colonial authorities, and the orphan schools were still being run by the convict department. So questions were asked in Parliament about this inquiry. Certainly, gossip had spread throughout the community, and people knew what was uh, what was happening out there. But it took almost two years until they actually got to a stage where they were ready to hand over the orphanage before the parliamentary papers were published. And the Mercury took up the story. Uh, It was very irate, not only that these things had happened, but that the the matron, in fact, got away with um, only a reprimand from the governor. Well, the governor's reprimand, I haven't got time to read it now, but it was reprehensible and absolutely shameful. What were the final consequences for the matron? She was told that from now on she was to obey the superintendent. That was it. And the governor said that she shouldn't use a a whip to excess. That's right, to excess. To excess, okay. Now, let's go back to the story of Hannah and uh, I'd like you to tell me what happened to her in the end. Well, Hannah had to go back under the control of Matron Smith, having given testimony, and I don't even want to think about what that would have been like. But after a a year, her mother managed to get her out of the orphan schools. And so she left in a coach going uh, from Newtown past the area where she had been raped at Pontville and up to what is now Kempton, where she was taken under her mother's, uh, into her mother's arms again. And the next year, actually within a year, Hannah married, identifying herself as a housemaid aged 15. And I'm really happy to say that the marriage seems to have been extremely stable and supportive. And Hannah and her husband raised seven children, most of them girls with really elegant names, sort of saying confidently, I have a place in the world. Uh, I find that just a remarkable story of resilience, Philip. I just can't imagine this little girl who had been through so much and yet somehow managed to have a family of her own that she could look after to make sure that none of her children ever went into care. It's interesting that, uh, and it makes you realise we're talking about a comparatively short time frame in historic terms. She uh, lived until 1913. That's right. That's right. So um, these stories are not completely back in the olden days. <laughs> and, and you can understand that the consequences are still here today too. We're talking to uh, Lucy Frost about her book, Convict Orphans. As we said at the outset, it wasn't only uh, white kids in the orphan schools, there were Aboriginal kids too, including Fanny Cochran Smith, the last fluent speaker of the Tasmanian Aboriginal language. Tell me about Fanny. Fanny uh, came into the um, orphan schools from Flinders Island after the remnants of the First Peoples had been taken to Wybelina. She was actually one of three children whose mother was Tanganatura, who ended up in the orphan schools. And Fanny's half-brother, given the unlikely name of Duke, oh, I just hate the way they named those children, it's so degrading. Anyway, her half-brother had been uh, admitted um, a decade before Fanny arrived, and he had spent more than seven years um, in the orphan schools and had then been sent out as an apprentice to a man who was one of the Van Diemen's Land um, pastoralists who were beginning to take up land in the Western District as squatters. And so her half-brother, Duke, went with him to the Western District, and we don't know what happened to him. 
After Fanny was admitted, her younger brother, Adam, was admitted in 1847, along with William Lanny, whose fate was just too horrible to contemplate, but is uh, certainly of great interest today with the question of taking down the statue of William Crowther, who cut off his hands. Now, Fanny was celebrated for her lovely singing voice, and in 1899, a concert was held in her honour where she entertained the crowd with uh, the songs of her people. So as an adult, she celebrated for her voice and it was recorded on wax cylinders in 1899. They're the only spoken record of any of the original Tasmanian Aboriginal languages. And a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island listeners, you're about to hear from Fanny. In 2017, those recordings were were inducted into the UNESCO Australian Memorial of the World Register. Fanny, 11 children, one of Fanny's descendants is Palawa elder and Indigenous activist Rodney Dillon and Aboriginal artist Cheryl Mundy. So, in a sense, there's a good story there, isn't there? There is, especially through an artwork that Cheryl has created recently in front of the the entrance to the boys' uh, school at the orphan schools. The orphan schools have had a piece of good fortune in, in recent years. They have become the home of kickstart arts, and money has been raised to look after the buildings uh, in ways that has not happened for, for a long time. So Cheryl's artwork is designed to open up the doors to let the spirits of the Aboriginal children uh, return to country. Now, we, we've described the various forms of torment and slavery that these kids were subjected to, but there was also a spurious apprenticeship scheme, which was clearly another form of ruthless exploitation. It was almost exactly the same sort of scheme that had been used for assigned convicts uh, some decades before. So when the children were about 12 and almost always before they were 14, they were apprenticed with legal indentures to employers for whom they worked without pay until they were 18 years old. And as you say, the right word is spurious because these were not children who were being taught a trade, they were basically just free labour, unpaid and unfree, exactly as they assigned convicts before them. No wonder that so many absconded. Well, that's exactly right. So I have a database with a 1,000 children in the last 20 years of the orphan schools, uh, and a quarter of those children ran away, some of them several times. How did you... Uh put these kids' stories together, Lucy, because uh, they're stories that haven't been uh, detailed in this way before. Well, a couple of things. One is the uh, technology of the digitised records, which makes it possible for me to look uh, through Trove and through the wonderful digitised records of the uh, Tasmanian archives to pull together bits and pieces of narrative about these children. And as I say, I created a database and I just started looking for them. Every time I could find something, I put them in for that particular child until sometimes I found quite complete narratives, especially for the children who ran away, because once they ran away, they would be brought 
brought before a magistrate and they could tell their stories to the magistrate. And sometimes those stories are told in great detail with a number of witnesses um, because there were some cases where neighbors were very concerned about these children and they stood up for them. It's interesting that you also managed to speak to descendants of some of the kids. Yes, I have. And in fact, in one case, I have uh, had the great pleasure and I consider it an honor to have long conversations with a woman who is now in her 90s and who remembered as a child the visits of her grandmother, who they called Granny Finn, who came to uh, stay with them at various times. Granny Finn also was um, long-lived and so I've talked with a woman who remembers with love her grandmother who was a child in the orphan schools. Lucy, what happened to the orphan schools in the end? They were closed in 1879, partly because they had become so expensive. And then the people who were concerned about paying for them developed a scheme which they initially called farming out. I think probably a correct name, but they chose the more, the less oppressive name of boarding out. So it became a kind of foster care service, and then the buildings were repurposed for the years to come. Lucy, it's been a privilege to talk to you, and congratulations on your koala stamp. My guest has been Lucy Frost, author on this occasion of Convict Orphans, the heartbreaking stories, and indeed they are heartbreaking, of the colony's forgotten children and those who succeeded against all odds. It's uh, published by Alan and Unwin. On our next, beloved listeners, when should uh, elderly politicians call it quits? 89-year-old uh, Democrat Senator Dianne Feinstein is facing increasing pressure to retire due to ill health. We'll discuss that and more with our US correspondent, Bruce Shapiro, plus the Bengali migrant and engineering genius who became the father of the modern skyscraper. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.